Chapter One of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark DeSanzo. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy, by Ruth Putnam. Chapter One Childhood, fourteen thirty three to fourteen forty on st andrew's eve in the year fourteen thirty three the good people of dijon were abroad eager to catch what glimpses they might of certain stately functions to be formally celebrated by the duke of burgundy the mere presence of the sovereign in the capital of his duchy was in itself a gala event from its rarity various cities of the dominions agglomerated under his sway claimed his attention successively his residence was now here and now there without long tarrying anywhere his coming was usually very welcome in times of peaceful submission to his behest the city of his sojourn reaped many advantages besides the amusement of seeing her streets alive beyond their wont in the outlay for the necessities and the luxuries of the peripatetic ducal court the expenditures were lavish and in the temporary commercial activity enjoyed by the merchants the fact that the burghers own contribution to this luxury were heavy passed into temporary oblivion this autumn visit of philip the good to dijon was more significant than usual it had lasted several weeks and among its notable occasions was an assembly of the knights of the golden fleece for the third anniversary of their order on this november thirtieth burgundy was to witness for the first time the pompous ceremonials inaugurated at bruges in january fourteen thirty three years had sufficed to render the new institution almost as well known as its senior english rival the order of the garter which it was destined to outshine for a brief period at least its foundation had formed part of the elaborate festivities accompanying the celebration of the marriage of philip duke of burgundy to isabella of portugal as a signal honor to his bride philip published his intention of creating a new order of knighthood which would evince quote, his great and perfect love for the noble state of chivalry rumor indeed told various tales about the duke's real motives it was whispered that a certain lady of bruges whom he had distinguished by his attentions was ridiculed for her red hair by a few merry courtiers whereupon philip declared that her tresses should be immortally honored in the golden emblem of a new society but that may be set down as gossip philip's own assertion when he instituted the order of the golden fleece was that he intended to create a bulwark quote, for the reverence of god and the sustenance of our christian faith and to honor and enhance the noble order of chivalry and also for three reasons hereafter declared first to honor the ancient knights second to the end that these present may exercise the deeds of chivalry and constantly improve third that all gentlemen marking the honor paid to the knights will exert themselves to attain the dignity the special homage to the new duchess was expressed in the device autre dame isibeau tant que vivrait this pledge of absolute fidelity to dame isabella was indeed utterly disregarded by the bridegroom but in outward and formal honor to her he never failed the new institution was from the beginning pre-eminently significant of the duke's magnificent state existence wherein his portuguese consort proved herself an efficient and able helpmeet again and again during a period of thirty years rich in diplomatic parleying did isabella act as confidential ambassador for her husband 
and many were the negotiations conducted by her to his satisfaction but it must be noted that whatever lay at the exact root of philip's motives when he conceived the plan of his order the actual result of his foundation was not affected he failed indeed to bring back into the world the ancient system of knighthood in its ideal purity and strength rather did he make a notable contribution to its decadence and speed its parting what was brought into existence was a house of peers for the head of the burgundian family a body of faithful satellites who did not hamper their chief overmuch with the criticism permitted by the rules of their society while their own glory added shining rays to the brilliant centre of the burgundian court twenty-five inclusive of the duke was the original number appointed to form the chosen circle of knights this was speedily increased to thirty-one and a duty to be performed in the session of fourteen thirty three was the election of new members to fill vacancies and to round out the allotted tale in the manner of accomplishing the appointed task the new chevaliers had from the outset evinced a readiness to cast their votes to the satisfaction of their chief even if his pleasure directly conflicted with the regulations they had sworn to obey no candidate was to be eligible whose birth was not legitimate a regulation quite ignored when the duke proposed the names of his sons cornelius and anthony for his obedient knights did not refuse to open their ranks to these great bastards of burgundy who carried a bar sinister proudly on their escutcheon so too others of philip's many illegitimate descendants were not rejected when their father proposed their names again it was plainly stipulated that the new member should have proven himself a knight of renown yet in the session of fourteen thirty three one of the candidates proposed for election though nominally a knight had assuredly had no time to show his mettle the dignity was his only because his spurs had been thrown right royally into his cradle before his tiny hands had sufficient baby strength to grasp a rattle and before he was even old enough to use the pleasant gold to cut his teeth upon among the eight elected at dijon in fourteen thirty three was charles of burgundy count of charolais son of the sovereign duke born at dijon on the previous st martin's eve november tenth quote, the new chevalier with the exception of the count of vernonborg who was absent took the accustomed oath at the hands of the sovereign in a room of his palace so runs the record jean lefebvre seigneur de saint-remy present on the occasion in his capacity of king-at-arms of the order is a trifle more communicative according to him all the gentlemen were very joyous at their election as they received their callers and made their vows as stated he accepted no member in the phrase about the joy displayed though as a matter of inference the pleasure experienced by the count of charolais may be reckoned as somewhat problematical the heir of burgundy had attained the ripe age of just twenty days when thus officially listed among the chevaliers present at the festival born on november tenth of this same year fourteen thirty three he had been knighted on the very day of his baptism when charles count of nevers and the seigneur of croix were his sponsors the former gave his name to the infant while the latter's name was destined to be identified with many unpleasant incidents in the career of the future man this brief span of life is sufficient reason for the further item in the archives of the golden fleece Quote, as to the count of charolais he was carried into the same room there the sovereign his father and the duchess his mother took the oath on his behalf afterwards the duke put the collars upon all thus was emphasized at birth the parental conviction that charles of burgundy was of different metal than the rest of the world 
the great duke of the occident made a distinct epoch in the history of chivalry when he conferred its dignities upon a speechless unconscious infant the theory that knighthood was a personal acquisition had been maintained up to this period the children of france alone being accepted from the rule though in his les deveillance eustache deschamps complains that the degree of knighthood is actually conferred on those who are only ten or twelve years old and who do not know what to do with the honor that plaint was written not later than the first years of the fifteenth century and the poet's prediction that ruin of the institution was imminent when affected by such disorders seemed justified if in fourteen thirty three even the years of the eligible age had shrunk to days philip himself had not received the accolade until he was twenty-five how his predecessor in holland count william the sixth had acquitted himself valiantly the moment that he was dubbed knight is told by Froissart, and the tales of other accolades of the period are too well known to need reference it is said that the baby cavalier was nourished by his own mother having lost her first two infants isabella was solicitous for the welfare of this third child who also proved her last he was moreover philip's sole legal heir as michel of france and bonne of artois his first wives had left no offspring the care and devotion expended on the boy were repaid charles became a sturdy child who developed into youthful vigor in person he strangely resembled his mother and her portuguese ancestors rather than the english lancastrians from whom she was equally descended his dark hair and his features were very different from the fair type of his paternal ancestors the vigorous branch of the valois family possibly other characteristics suggesting his portuguese origin were intensified by close association with his mother who supervised the education directed by the seigneur d'oxy they often lived at the hague where isabella acted as chief and official adviser to the duke stadtholder in the administration charles was a diligent pupil if we may believe his contemporaries surprisingly so considering his early taste for all martial pursuits and his intense interest in military operations at two years of age he received his first lesson in horsemanship on a wooden steed constructed for his especial use by jean rampart a saddler of brussels his biographers repeat from each other statements of his proficiency in latin this must be balanced by noting that the only texts which he could have read were probably not classic in the inventory of the various burgundian libraries of the period there are not six greek and latin classical texts all told and excepting sallust not a single roman historian in the original there was a translation of livy by the prior of st alois and late abridgments of sallust suetonius lucan and caesar with a french version of valerius maximus but nothing of tacitus doubtless these versions and a volume called les Fées de romain were used as textbooks to teach the young count about the world's conquerors the last mentioned book shows what travesties of roman history were gravely read in the fifteenth century there are stories that a bit of history most enjoyed by the pupil was the narrative of alexander books about that hero were easy to come by long before the invention of printing though alexander would have had difficulty in recognizing his identity under the strange medieval motley in which his namesake wandered over the land no single man with the possible exception of charlemagne was so much written about or played so brilliantly the part of a hero to the middle ages and after the simplicity and universality of his success were of a type to appeal to the boy charles himself built on simple lines the fact too that alexander was the son of a philip 
stimulated his imagination and instilled in his breast hopes of conquering not the whole world perhaps but a good slice of territory which should enable him to hold his own between the emperor and the french king tales of definite schemes of early ambition are often fabricated in the later life of a conqueror but in this case they may be believed as all threads of testimony lead to the same conclusion the air breathed by the boy when he first became conscious of his own individuality was certainly heavy with the aroma of satisfied ambition the period of his childhood was a time when his father stood at the very zenith of his power in fourteen thirty five was signed the treaty of arras the death-blow to the long coalition existing between burgundy and england to the continual detriment of france philip was reconciled with great solemnity to the king responsible in his dauphin days for the murder of the late duke of burgundy after ostentatiously parading his filial resentment sixteen long years philip forgave charles the seventh his share in the death of john the fearless on the bridge at montreux and swore to lend his support to keep the french monarch on the throne whither the efforts of joan of arc had carried him from bourges the forlorn court of his exile england's pretensions were repudiated to be sure the recent coronation of henry the sixth at paris was not immediately forgotten but while the duke of bedford had actually administered the government as regent in behalf of his infant nephew it was a mere shadow of his office that passed to his successor bedford's death in fourteen thirty five was almost coincident with the compact at arras when the english henry's realm across the channel shrank to normandy and the outlying fortresses of picardy and maine later events on english soil were to prove how little fitted was the son of henry v for sovereignty of any kind out of the negotiations at arras philip of burgundy rose triumphant with a seal set upon his personal importance his recognition of charles the seventh as lawful sovereign of france and his reconciliation did not pass without signal gain to himself the king declared his own hands unstained by the blood of john of burgundy agreed to punish all those designated by philip as actually responsible for that treacherous murder and pledged himself to erect a cross on the bridge at montereau the scene of the crime further he relinquished various revenues in burgundy hitherto retained by the crown from the moment when the junior branch of the valois had been invested with the duchy thirteen sixty four and he ceded the counties of boulogne artois and all the seigneuries belonging to the french sovereign on both banks of the somme to this last session however was appended the condition that the towns included in this clause could be redeemed at the king's pleasure for the sum of four hundred thousand gold crowns further charles exempted philip from acts of homage to himself promised to demand no aid from the duke's subjects in case of war and to assist his cousin if he were attacked from england lastly he renounced an alliance lately contracted with the emperor to philip's disadvantage one clause in the treaty crowned the royal submissiveness toward the powerful vassal it provided that in case of charles failure to observe all the stipulated conditions his own subjects would be justified in taking arms against him at the duke's orders a similar clause occurs in certain treaties between an earlier french king and his flemish vassals but always to the advantage of the suzerain not to that of the lesser lords the duke was left in a position infinitely superior to that of the king whose realm was terribly exhausted by the long contest with england a contest wherein one nation alone had felt the invader's foot french prosperity had been nibbled off like green foliage before a swarm of locusts and the whole northeastern portion of france was in a sorry state of desolation by fourteen thirty five 
on the other hand the territories covered by burgundy as an overlord had greatly increased during the sixteen years that philip had worn the title an aggregation of duchies counties and lordships formed his domain loosely hung together by reason of their several titles being vested in one person titles which the bearer had inherited or assumed under various pretexts flanders and artois together with the duchy and county of burgundy came to him from his father john the fearless in fourteen nineteen in fourteen twenty one he bought namur in fourteen thirty he declared himself heir to his cousins in brabant and limbourg when duke anthony's second son followed his equally childless brother into a premature grave and the claims were made good in spite of all opposition holland zealand and hainault became his through the unwilling abdication of his other cousin jacqueline in fourteen thirty three to save the life of her husband frank van borselen the last representative of the bavarian house then formally resigned her titles which she had already divested of all significance five years previously when philip of burgundy had become her rewar to relieve a poor feminine person of a weight of responsibility too heavy for her shoulders diverse items in the accounts show what philip expended in having the titles of holland zealand and hainault added to his other designations also there were various places where his predecessor's name had to be effaced to make room for his antwerp and mechlin were included in brabant luxembourg was a later acquisition obtained through elizabeth of gerlitz there were very shady bits in the chapters about philip's entry into many of his possessions but it is interesting to note how cleverly the best color is given to his actions by olivier de la marche and other writers who enjoyed burgundian patronage very gentle are the adjectives employed and a nice cloak of legality is thrown over the naked facts as they are ushered into history contemporary criticism did occasionally make itself heard especially from the emperor who declared that the netherland provinces must come to him as a lapsed imperial fief for a time philip denied that any links existed between his domain and the empire but in fourteen forty nine he finally found it convenient to discuss the question with frederick the third at Besançon. still he never came to the point of paying homage all these territories made a goodly realm for a mere duke but they were individual entities centered around one head with little interconnection philip thought that the one thing needed to bring his possessions into a national life as coherent as that of france was a unity of legal existence among the dissimilar parts and the effort to attain this unity was the one thought dominating the career of his successor whose pompous introduction to life naturally inspired him with a high idea of his own rank and led him to dream of greater dignities for himself and his successor than a bundle of titles a splendid vain fatal dream as it proved as a final cement to the new friendship between burgundy and france it was also agreed at arras that the heir of the former should wed a daughter of charles the seventh when the count of charolais was five years old the seigneur of crebacour a wise and prudent gentleman was dispatched to the french court on diverse missions among which was the business of negotiating the projected alliance a very joyous reception was accorded the envoy by the king and the queen and his proposal was accepted in behalf of the second daughter catherine easily substituted for an older sister deceased between the first and second stages of negotiation a year later a formal betrothal took place at saint-omer whither the young bride was conducted most honorably accompanied by the archbishops of rheims and of narbonne 
by the counts of vendome tonnerre and dunois the young son of the duke of bourbon named the lord of beaujeu and various other distinguished nobles besides a train of noble dames and demoiselles in special attendance on the princess and an escort of three hundred horse at the various cities where the party made halt they were graciously received and all honor was paid to the ten-year-old daughter of france at cambrai she was met by the duke's envoys and as she travelled on towards her destination all the towns of philip's obedience contributed their quota of welcome at saint-omer the duke was awaiting her coming when her approach was announced he rode out in person to greet her attended by a brilliant escort within the city quote-unquote melodious festivals were ready to burst into tune the betrothal was confirmed amid joyousness and the ceremony was followed by tourneys and jousts all at the expense of the duke what a series of pompous betrothals between infant parties the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries can show poor little puppets in whose persons national interests were supposed to be centred were made to lisp out their roles in international dramas whose final acts rarely were consistent with the promise of the prologue catherine did not live to become duchess of burgundy nor to temper the duel between her husband and her brother louis the remainder of her short existence was passed under the care of duchess isabella sometimes in one city of the netherlands sometimes in another lamarche records one return of philip to brussels when his arrival was greeted by charles of burgundy honorably accompanied by children of high birth about his age or less some only eleven or twelve years old there were with him jehan de la tremoille philip de croix philip de crevecoeur philip de wavrin and many others all were mounted on little horses harnessed like that of their governor a very honest and wise gentleman named messire jehan seigneur hebert d'oxy this gentleman was a fine man well known of good lineage ready of speech and able to discuss matters of honor and of state he was both hunter and falconer skilled in all exercise and sport Quote, never asserts lamarche have i met a gentleman better adapted to supervise the education of a young prince than he among his pupils were also anthony bastard of burgundy son of philip and the marquis hugues de rotelin these lads were older than the first mentioned lamarche dilates on the pleasure the duke felt in this youthful band of horse and then tells how within brussels quote, he was received by the magistrates and conducted to his palace where the duchess of burgundy awaited him holding by the hand madame catherine of france countess of charolais she was about twelve and seemed a lady grown for she was good and wise and well conditioned for her age at various state functions the count and countess of charolais appeared together in public and witnessed certain of the gorgeous and costly entertainments which were almost the daily food of the gay burgundian court one of these occasions was calculated to make a deep impression on the boy and to arouse his pride at the spectacle of a proud city wooing his father's favor in deep humiliation in fourteen thirty six an insurrection had occurred in bruges when the animosity of the burghers had caused the duchess to flee from their midst holding her little son in her arms alarmed for his personal safety philip suppressed the revolt but in his anger at its insolence declared that never again would he set foot within the gates unless in company with his superior among the many negotiations wherein isabella played a prominent part as her husband's representative were those concerning the liberation of the duke of orleans 
who had remained in England a prisoner after the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. The last advice given by Henry V to his brothers was that they should make this captivity perpetual. Therefore, whenever overtures were made for his redemption, a strong party, headed by Humphrey of Gloucester, rejected them vehemently. In 1440, however, there was a turn in the tide of sentiment. Possibly the low state of the English exchequer made the duke's ransom more attractive than his person. At any rate, 120,000 gold crowns were accepted as his equivalent, and the exile of twenty-five years returned to France, having pledged himself never to bear arms against England. Isabella of Burgundy was at Calais to welcome him and to escort him to Saint-Omer, where high revels were made in his honor and in that of his alliance with Marie of Cleves, Philip's niece. The week intervening between the betrothal and the nuptials was passed in a succession of banquets and tourneys, gorgeous in their elaboration. Moreover, St. Andrew's Day chancing to fall just then, the new Burgundian order was convened and the Duke of Orléans was elected a Knight of the Golden Fleece while in his turn he presented his cousin with the collar of his own order of the porcupine lord cornwallis and other english gentlemen who had accompanied orleans across the channel participated in these gaieties nor were they among the least favored guests adds barant amity was triumphant and there was a general feeling abroad that the returned exile was henceforth to be the ruling power in france people began to look to him to act as the go-between in their behalf to be their mediator with Charles the Seventh, still little known at his best. Many towns turned towards him in hopes of finding a friend, and among them was Bruges. But it was not royal favors that Bruges sought. Her burghers felt great inconvenience from the breach with their sovereign duke. Anxious to be reinstated in his grace, they seized the opportunity of reminding Philip of his assertion, and they besought him to enter their gates in company with the Duke of Orléans, a prince of the blood, closer to the French sovereign than the Duke of Burgundy. After some demur, Philip consented to grant their petition. Possibly he was not loath to be persuaded. The deputies hastened back to Bruges to rejoice their fellow citizens with the news, and to prepare a reception for their appeased sovereign, calculated to make him content with the late rebels. Before the grand cortege, composed of the two dukes, their consorts, and the dignitaries who had assisted in the feasts of marriage and of chivalry, reached the gates of Bruges, the citizens were ready with a touching spectacle of humility and repentance. A league from the gates, the magistrates and burghers stood in the road awaiting the travelers from Saint-Omer. All were barefooted and bareheaded. Under the December sky they waited the approach of the stately procession. When the duke arrived, they all fell upon their knees and implored him to forgive the late troubles and to reinstate their city in his favor. Philip did not answer immediately delay was always a feature of these episodes thereupon the duke of orleans both duchesses and all the gentlemen joined their entreaties to the citizens prayers again a pause and then as if generously yielding to pressure philip bade the burghers put on their shoes and their hats while he accepted at their hands the keys of all the gates then the long procession moved on towards bruges at the gate were the clergy followed by the monks, nuns, and begins of the various convents and foundations, bearing crosses, banners, reliquaries, and many precious ecclesiastical treasures. There, too, were the guilds and merchants on horseback, with magnificent accoutrements freshly burnished to do honor to the welcome they offered their forgiving overlord. Throughout Bruges, at convenient places, platforms and stages were erected, 
whereon were enacted dramatic performances given continuously to provide amusement for the collected crowds sometimes the presentation carried significance beyond mere entertainment here a maid garbed as a wood-nymph appeared leading a swan which wore the collar of the golden fleece and a porcupine this last beast was to symbolize the orleans device near and far as the creature was supposed to project his spines to a distance one enthusiastic citizen covered his whole house with gold and the roof with silver leaves to betoken his satisfaction indeed if we may believe the chroniclers never in the memory of man had any city incurred so much expense to honor its lord the duke permitted his heart to be touched by these proofs of devotion and on the very evening of his arrival he evinced that his confidence was restored by sending the civic keys and a gracious message to the magistrates at the news of this condescension the cries of noel re-echoed afresh through the illuminated streets charles was not present at this entry which took place on saturday december eleventh but philip was so much entertained with the performance that he sent for his son and on the following saturday he and the countess of charolais came from ghent to join the party the duke of orleans and many nobles rode out of the city to meet the young couple who were formally escorted to the palace by magistrates and citizens in a body on the sunday there were repetitions of some of the plays and every attention was offered by the bruges burghers to their young guests when orleans departed with his bride on tuesday december fourteenth what wonder that the lady wept in sorrow at leaving these gay burgundian doings while charles did not actually witness the humiliation of the citizens the seven-year-old boy would undoubtedly have heard and known sufficient of the cause of the festivals to be fully aware that the citizens who had dared defy his father were glad to buy back his smiles at any cost to their pride and purse he would have known too that merchants from venice genoa florence and elsewhere joined the bruges burghers in the welcome to the mollified overlord it was a spectacle of the relations between a city and the ducal father not to be easily forgotten by the son End of chapter 1